This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 1077 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming online at www.wvew.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. On the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and not the radio station. So my name is Amar Langsdorf. And I'm Kelly Juno, and we're both teachers. I teach in Massachusetts and Amar teaches uh, here in Vermont at the Compass School. And um, Corey's on the board with us today. So today's show is about the state of housing in Brattleboro. We will speak with Rihanna Kendrick um, to delve more deeply into vacancies, rent ownership, and affordable housing in Brattleboro. We're also going to look at the Short-Term Rental Summit, which is coming up in May, um, which is a summit that is um, sponsored by Airbnb and that is brought here by the Downtown Business Alliance um, to push towards short-term rentals and look at what that means for um, housing for people in Brattleboro. Um, so we're also here with Rihanna Kendrick, and she is the Director of Operations for ground, the Groundworks Collaborative in Brattleboro. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so Rihanna, can you just start us off by giving us um, a sense of the bigger picture of what housing looks like in Brattleboro, average rent, vacancy rate, um, evictions, and what do those look like? Sure. It's a broad question. Uh, the average rent that we typically see in Brattleboro can range anywhere from a studio apartment at six fifty a month to a three-bedroom apartment that could be in excess of $1,200 a month. So depending on who's looking for housing and what type of housing they're looking for, there's a pretty broad uh, continuum of what rent looks like. In terms of vacancy, the the challenge that we often have is that uh, we do not have a strong vacancy rate in Vermont at all, and certainly not in Brattleboro. So a healthy market has a vacancy rate of four to six percent. And in Wyndham County, we actually have a vacancy rate um, of under one percent. And so apartments are not opening up. Uh, folks are not uh, finding available units to house themselves in. And then uh, from the vantage point of what we do at Groundworks, we see people really struggling to afford the rents for the apartments that do exist and a lot of competition for the people that are looking to access them. In terms of evictions in Brattleboro, I think I probably am not the best person to speak to this. We certainly see evictions as part of the work that we do. Uh, we support folks in eviction prevention work. Uh, I wouldn't say that we have a super high rate of eviction overall, but certainly something that the folks that we're working with are struggling with on an ongoing basis. Um, I don't um, know if you can speak to this, but whether um, the rental situation in Brattleboro has gotten less affordable over time or whether it's changed at all. I think it's definitely gotten less affordable. I think for folks that are searching who are struggling with a low wage and may need some sort of subsidy or voucher to supplement their rent, there is a struggle in finding an apartment that fits in with in those guidelines. Um, and certainly landlords who have struggled with tenants who have come with a voucher or subsidy in the past uh, sometimes are making sure that their rentals are priced out of that market for folks. And so I think there's a number of factors that come into play. I think overall, we don't have enough housing stock to house the number of people that we have in our county, which is you know a statewide and national problem. And so there's a lot of different components that go into how that continues to be unaffordable, um, you know, with such a limited housing stock at the same time. Could you speak a little bit about the quality of the housing in Brattleboro? Like, generally curious about the quality of the units offered versus the rent that they're offered for, and if they come up to code and are generally upkept. If that's something that you know about? Yeah, there's a. I mean, there's a strong conversation in town right now about having an inspection program in place. That's certainly something that I would support. That we at Groundworks would support. You know, we. 
look at this a little bit differently probably than the average consumer who's just out searching for an apartment. We're trying to walk hand in hand with people and help them find an affordable and a safe unit. Um, and what people are finding and what they're um, able to rent are are often not safe and affordable. And so um, at the same time, people need housing. And so they're willing to accept an apartment that might not be up to kind of a standard that it should be. Um, certainly someone with a housing voucher or subsidy, there is an inspection that takes place. And so there is a level of making sure that it meets basic safety codes. But um, it certainly looks a lot different than if you're just out renting an apartment in the open market. I think certainly there's a lot of housing stock in Brattleboro and you know in Vermont as a whole that is old and hasn't been maintained well. So we're always really excited to see places like Wyndham Windsor really, you know, remodel apartments and renovate and, and keep things both up to code and also um, at a quality that folks that we support wouldn't necessarily find elsewhere. Yeah, I just have a follow-up question to what you were just talking about, partly with um, like available housing and then also thinking about upkeep. So if we have a really low vacancy rate and we're thinking about um, the maintenance and quality of the units that are available, like how do those things reflect on each other? And um, just thinking about like, you know, if, if landlords can decide to price their units out of range of people who have vouchers, it must mean that they can rent them for that range, whether or not, I don't know, like whether or not they're um, worth that amount. I don't know, can you say sure. like the relationship between the vacancy rate and like upkeep and pricing rents? Yeah, I think, I mean, if a, if a unit isn't vacant, then it's not able to be well-maintained. And so because there's such a low vacancy rate and there's not a place for people to live, it's not like, I think a landlord is less likely to remodel or renovate an apartment when they can simply just fill it and make sure that there's no uh, loss of income in that rental itself. Um, and then in terms of, you know, the rent piece itself, I think because there's such low housing stock, people are potentially renting units that, you know, maybe are not as quality of us at as quality of a standard, uh, but they still need a place to live. And so, um, you know, the higher rental is driven in part by the, the low vacancy rate and who's competing for those units. And so I think it does make it accessible to drive that rent up higher than it probably should be. And sorry, this is another follow-up question, but um, my understanding is that there aren't um, rent controls in Brattleboro, like, you know, like somewhere like New York City, for example, right. there is rent control. Yes. But here it's completely up to the landlord what they price their unit at? Yep, yeah, so landlords are setting their own prices on their units. And so, you know, we look at, for housing vouchers and subsidies, we look at the fair market rates uh, for rent, which are set by HUD. Um, and so those have a specific range attached to them. And so landlords certainly know uh, that if they set them outside of the fair market rent values, that there's a certain number of people who might not be able to access them. And so there isn't any sort of rent control that exists. And so it's, you know, it's the demand of the of the market itself. So people are continuing to look to rent even yeah. if units are priced really high. So, um, I mean, you touched on this somewhat, but what are the barriers to housing that somebody, for example, who's homeless or who's low income faces in order to get into a stable housing situation that they can count on staying in? Sure. I could probably answer this one for days, but <laughs> there's all kinds of barriers. I mean, we have folks that come in who don't have a source of income, um, and there's this misconception that there's jobs available and people who are homeless don't have anything else that they're doing, so they could just get a job and that solves everything. But when we start to really break down those barriers pretty significantly, then we look at things like folks don't have an ID, and then how do they access an ID? Where were they born? How do we get their birth certificate? Uh, which is less complicated than how do we get them a social security card? Then they have to have mail. So that process in itself, just to get an ID, can often take, I would love to say, you know, three months or less, but sometimes it takes more. Um, and then folks have to be 
ready and able to be in a place where they can work. And when you're homeless and living in crisis and trying to figure out where am I going to sleep each night or take a shower, um, you know, in the wintertime, we have the shelter available. It's not a great option for everyone. Uh, And in the summertime, it gets even more challenging to think about living in a tent and then trying to work and have some sort of income. Um, You know, and the other side of that is that we work with folks who struggle significantly with other barriers. So, you know, there's not any one path that leads folks to homelessness. It's often so many different barriers rolled into each other and then they compound on each other. So we often talk about how substance use is not typically ever what leads people to homelessness but once folks are homeless and hopeless and full of despair uh, that is something that makes people feel better Uh, and so it's common that we work with a population that also starts using substances which further comp you know makes things super complicated for them and for us to try to support them so you know it's so many there's so many different factors i feel like i could just keep listing them over and over again um you know we have women who flee domestic violence without financial resources and then uh, both have no resources often have children and need to start over again Um, we as agencies try to make sure that folks have things in terms of move-in costs so that if they were able to rehouse quickly that we could help get them back on their feet Uh, But the reality of the work that we do is that folks often need vouchers and subsidies and uh, and a lot of times coupled with case management to make sure that they are successful long term and those resources are just not readily available. There's not enough to go around and so we're we're prioritizing resources from a very small pool of resources to a very large pool of people that need that support. Um, Would you say that people who are homeless and low income face discrimination from landlords? Yes, absolutely. Um, and and at the same time, you know, we work with so many landlords all over town and are, are deeply grateful for them, especially the ones that are very supportive. And we also understand that a landlord is really focused on their bottom line. And so they're really focused on what money are they going to make and how much risk can they take. And so a lot of the you know, the rentals that we are able to work to get people into that have really complicated histories, uh, we're doing that based on relationships that we've built with landlords so that they know if something comes up once someone moves in, that we will show up and that we will continue to support them and potentially have funding available if there's some level of damage that's involved. But I think on a daily basis, folks who are homeless and struggling with poverty are discriminated against through kind of every major system that we expect people to live in. Yeah, on the flip side of that, I had sort of an enlightening experience once I was renting an apartment and I went to see it and um, the landlord showed me around and I said, I really like it and I definitely um, would like to put in an application. Um, And he said, great, it's been vacant and um, this is what it looks like and you'll have to put your um, references here. And then he looks at me and he says, but I can already tell you'll be a good tenant. I probably won't even need to call your references. Yeah. So it's like, what about me? <laughs> Looked like I would somehow be a good tenant because obviously he didn't know me at all. But that's a yeah. whole piece of first impressions. I feel like, you know, at some point in our lives, we were it was drilled into us that our first impressions, how we showed up and we spoke and we looked would have an impact on whatever job we were trying to get or relationship we were trying to form. And uh, if you are somebody who has lived chronically homeless on the streets for a decade, uh, that perception can look really different than an average person and, and discrimination absolutely follows. And so, um, and it's really hard to have landlords who are overly supportive um, can sometimes take too much risk and then struggle with the buildings that they own and the activity that goes on there. And so, it's a really tight balancing act that they have to to contend with as well. Great. Let's maybe go to a song break. Cool. So our first song is called Legal Slash Illegal, and it's by Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeger. Every time you pick up a newspaper 
Every time you switch on the TV You can bet your old boots that at some point you'll see A high-ranking copper or Tory MP Calling on all who are British and free To stand up and defend law and order It's illegal to rip off a payroll It's illegal to hold up a train but it's legal to rip off a million or two That comes from the labour that other folk do To plunder the many on behalf of the few Is a thing that is perfectly legal It's illegal to kill off a landlord Or to trespass upon his estate but to charge a high rent for a slum is okay To condemn two adults and three children to stay In a hovel that's rotten with damp and decay Is a thing that is perfectly legal If your job turns you into a zombie It's legal to feel some despair But don't be aggressive, that is, if you're smart And for Christ's sake, don't upset the old apple cart Remember the boss has your interests at heart And it grieves him to see you unhappy If you fashion a bomb in the kitchen You're guilty of breaking the law but a bloody great nuclear plant is okay Though plutonium processing hastens the day When this tight little isle may be blasted away Nonetheless it is perfectly legal It's illegal if you are a gypsy To camp by the side of the road but it's proper and right for the rich and the great To live in a mansion and own an estate That was got from the people by pillage and rape That's what they call a tradition It's illegal to carve up your missus Or put poison in your old man's tea But poison the rivers, the seas and the sky Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on W on one oh seven seven FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. That was Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeker with Legal Slash Illegal. And I wanted to just quote uh, one of the lines here in case you didn't catch all the lyrics there. It's illegal to kill off a landlord or to trespass upon his estate. But to charge a high rent for a slum is okay. To condemn two adults and three children to stay in a hovel that's rotten with damp and decay is a thing that's perfectly legal. So today we're talking about housing in Brattleboro, and we're here with Rihanna Kendrick from the Brattleboro Drop-In Center. So we just talked and got a picture of what housing looks like in Brattleboro right now, and we're going to talk a little bit about efforts to change and improve the situation. So to start off here, Rihanna, what resources does Groundworks use to get people in housing? Well, it's kind of like a big puzzle is what we often refer to it like. Um, so we have a, a half-time funded position that is called a landlord liaison. And so this person for us is working on building relationships with landlords, uh, figuring out what units are open and available and trying to match up folks that we have to units and thinking about who would be the, the best match in a tenant-landlord relationship and what unit kind of best meets their needs, which is not generally the conversation that happens with people that are homeless. So we really try to turn the conversation to what people's needs are and how we can meet them versus just putting someone in an apartment because it happens to be open and available. So that role is really crucial for us. We have a team of case managers that work directly with folks. And so they're working on all of the pieces that have created barriers to folks being housed and trying to kind of remedy those and work around those. Um, becoming housed in a more non-traditional sense. So when you're struggling in poverty, becoming housed is really challenging. Housing applications are really long. Uh, if you don't have references or you have bad references or you have criminal history, those sorts of things, we have to do a lot of work around how do we provide documentation? How do we uh, tell somebody's story without 
telling too much of someone's story. So our case management team is always working on those things. Um, we have small bits of funding that we use to help fund uh, security departments, security deposits, and uh, some of uh, first month's rent at times if we need to. Uh, we also have some risk pool funds available, so we can do some creative things with that money. We can uh, offer extra security deposit if somebody, if a landlord is, you know, tempted but struggling with the amount of risk they might be taking on. Um, you know, money is often the key to being able to unlock doors for folks. Uh, and so that's something that we, we work quite a bit on as well. We also work with all of our community partners. And so there's a number of agencies, you know, we're, we're one of many agencies doing this work. Uh, everybody focuses, I would say, on a slightly different population, but we're all really focused on how do we make sure that really vulnerable people in our community get housed? And so how do we also come together as community partners to create solutions instead of just trying to create kind of one-off solutions because we need something larger for our community. This issue is not, uh, it's certainly, we're not solving much of it at this point. I think that there's a lot of good work that's happening, but we're not making a dent in the homelessness that we see and, and the challenges that people are faced with. So we're really trying to, to work as a community to build resources as well. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the Lamplighter building on Putney Road and what it is and sure. what's happening with it. Yeah. yeah. So the Lamplighter is now known as Great River Terrace. And so it's what's called a permanent supportive housing uh, model. And so uh, permanent supportive housing is an evidence-based model similar to Housing First. And it's what we refer to as a three-legged stool. And so you need to have housing stock you need to have a subsidy and you need to have supportive services and those things when they come together build permanent supportive housing and so that project is a collaboration that we have with Wyndham Windsor who's the property owner and property manager and Groundworks provides a full-time staff person for supportive services that's on site and uh, HCRS also provides a part-time staff person who's also providing on-site services and so that team out there, which includes a housing support coordinator that Wyndham Windsor hired, provides on-site services to folks. Um, the rent is subsidized for those units with a what's called a project-based voucher uh, through Vermont State Housing Authority. And a project-based voucher is one that stays with the unit rather than with the person and the with the goal that after one year of being housed successfully with a project-based voucher and if there's funds available, um, then folks can look to take a, a longer term voucher and move elsewhere with that, which creates a flow in that property for new folks to move in. And so that um, program, we've prioritized people through what's called coordinated entry. So now we get kind of deeper into the system of what we do. So coordinated entry is a single point of entry system for folks who are homeless or at risk of homelessness. And it's meant to create a master list in our community and allow us to prioritize resources and also have a, an understanding through data of what the resources are. And so folks for that uh, property were specifically prioritized. And so they are all coming from some um, you know, level of homelessness with different needs. And it's been wildly successful. The team that we have out there is really incredible. Our residents are really incredible and have formed a really lovely community. And we are headed into the first year of that uh, project up and running and everyone who has moved in there is still housed and living successfully out there. So um, that is not necessarily common. There is some rate of uh, eviction for folks who move into permit part of housing. And so we're really excited to see that that has worked really well. How many units are there? There's 22 units in total, uh, and there's one of them is a, what's called a resident key holder, so kind of like the resident manager for the property, and the rest are, are residents and units out there. And so is everybody um, in the Lamplighter building um, on, it's, they're part of the program, so they have some sort of subsidy and they're being supported in some way? Yep, yep. It's a little convoluted because there was a couple of people who lived there uh, before and so they were offered units to return and so those folks are not necessarily engaged in services uh, we also work with the Department of Corrections and we have two units set aside for folks who are uh, engaged in the correction system as well and so those folks are kind of required to work with us and to engage in case management but the the overarching mission of permit supportive housing is that you 
uh, use the housing first model to put people in the units and then services are there and they're available but they're not mandatory and we've been really successful where everybody has engaged on some level with the staff out there some much more than others but the goal is really that that's able to help people settle in have a home uh, reduce barriers that may have led them to live there in the first place um, and it also it you know it's the second uh, program of its nature in Vermont and it's probably for a lot of people that live there it's the most beautiful place they've ever lived which is really exciting and has a community center attached to it and so there's all sorts of uh, community activities that are going on in that building on any given moment. I'm curious um, you said that there are supportive services offered in that facility and I'm just curious what some of those services are. Yeah, so the supportive services is primarily case management, uh, but the HCRS case manager is also connected to the HCRS system. And so they can uh, help to help folks to access mental health care and psychiatry, other uh, services along the mental health lines that they may need. Um, and our case manager also has access to our embedded provider. So we have a, a nurse that's uh, that we partner with BMH to have on site. We have a mental health clinician from the retreat. Um, and so those folks are also available in terms of the services that are provided out there. And then the community activities are all, uh, they've done everything you could possibly think of from gardening to yoga to tai chi to meditation. So there's a pretty well-rounded um, kind of level activity that's always being offered out there on site. Um, so you mentioned the housing first model, and I was wondering if you could just tell, like, just describe what housing first is. Sure. Yeah, housing first is, you know, a model of housing that's meant to place people in housing and wrap supports around them. And so when we talk about permanent supportive housing, those uh, supports can be in a, a scattered site model so they can be in various apartments kind of all over town or they can just be in one single site which is what Great River Terrace is but the goal of housing first is really to to without restriction to allow people to access housing um, and then to support them as they're interested and and as needs come up and that can look like a lot of different things we see people who move into housing who do incredibly well and maybe six months in all of a sudden are ready to engage in some supports um, or some people really never have a, a high level of need from us we may help someone with some paperwork you know occasionally but um, the goal of housing first is really how do we house people without restriction and ensure that they continue to stay housed over time so you guys work with pathways a little bit right we do yeah, yeah so pathways um is um it's a, is it a Vermont, specifically a Vermont Housing First agency? Yes. So their executive director once worked in New York City with Dr. Sambaris, who originally created the Housing First model on the streets of New York, and then brought that, she brought that model here to Vermont and created an agency here. So, yeah, so I'm just going to say a little bit of information that I learned in my research this week about Pathways and the work that they do with Housing First in Brattleboro. Um, so... Well, I mean, one of my questions was funding, because obviously in ho if housing is the first thing, then income is not the first thing. And so like thinking about how do people, um, how does the housing get paid for? So I learned that it's funded through Medi Medicaid, the Department of Corrections and the Department of Mental Health all give money to um, pathways to do their housing first work. And that in Wyndham County, their caseload is around um, between 40 and 45 people. Um, I also learned that house, uh, Pathways does not own buildings and they, like you were mentioning, um, like cluster versus like people who are scattered a little more. Um, so they try to, they say they try to scatter people yep. a little more. And I, um, just to like, they, um, thinking about integrating people into the community and being neighbors with people of all income levels and all different life circumstances, um, and, you know, somebody living next to somebody who's receiving support from Pathways, you know, they might not even know that their neighbor has that support. So it's, um, they're trying to integrate people a little bit more. Um, and that people don't have to have an income to get housing first. And that um, if they have an income, they pay 30% of their income toward rent. And if they don't, then they might be subsidized or not have to pay at all. In that case, the Vermont uh, state housing authority is paying the landlords. Um, 
Yeah, anything you want to add or? No, I think that all makes sense for folks who don't have an income. So this conversation comes up a lot is that uh, people who panhandle have a place to live and they absolutely may and still have no income. Mm-hmm. Um, so there still is a minimum rent typically that's due. And so folks might access uh, economic services and receive a, a rental assistance benefit there in addition to uh, personal needs money, which if you have no other income, the money that you receive is $56 a month. So there's this misconception that there's a welfare system that pays, but it doesn't if you're a single adult who is struggling with homelessness or struggling without an income. Um, So in doing some research about uh, housing first models, just gonna provide a little bit more information and an example. Um, This was a program that got put into place in, in Utah um, and in Salt Lake City. Um, a housing first model was put in place in 2005 to address chronic homelessness. Um, and it was actually put in place from an economic perspective that this is uh, about 10% of the homeless population that uses approximately 50% of the state's homeless resources. And it was put in as an um, as a way to save money. Um, and I'm going to read a quote here from a Reuters article about this. Um, finally, permanent supportive housing has been found to be cost efficient. Providing access to housing generally results in cost savings for communities because housed people are less likely to use emergency services, including hospitals, jails, and emergency shelter than those who are homeless. And depending, I looked at a few different studies on it, and depending on what, which one, it came up with somewhere between twelve and $23,000 saved in a housing first model per year, um, which I, I just found that to be really interesting because it challenged some of my uh, assumptions about how expensive a program like that would be. Uh, I don't know if there's anything you'd like to comment on about that. That's Sure. I think uh, there's definitely a lot of conversation about how uh, folks who are homeless and how folks who are living in poverty and the systems that are created to support them uh, create a tax burden for uh, residents, for other residents who are working. And I think the thing that comes up for me a lot is that um, that it doesn't. That's just simply not the way that those programs are funded. But it does create a burden on emergency services that people are accessing. So as uh, residents who pay taxes, we our taxes contribute to things like the police department and the fire department and emergency services and that nature. And folks who are homeless use those services at a much higher rate than folks who are not. And the contrast between the fact that it takes around $10,000 a year for, to provide a housing subsidy for somebody to live, uh, certainly the the supportive services component is a larger expense than that. But just that number alone in comparison to thinking about a stay at the emergency room for one night or an acute level psychiatric bed is upwards of $1,200 for a single night. And thinking about folks who might uh, sit in the emergency room waiting for a mental health bed, which is a, a major problem that we have all over the state and certainly here, you know, those numbers ratchet up really quickly uh, and it's just not a cost-effective way or a way with any sort of humanity or dignity that we are supporting people who really need more from us. So um, say somebody who's homeless ends up in the ER, um, who ends up paying for that? So it ends up being a Medicaid issue if somebody has insurance. Uh, It's not uncommon that we have folks who don't have insurance, and so then uh, the hospital is on the hook for that bill, potentially. Um, They have a financial assistance program, which we're able to access at times for folks, but again, that's another packet of paperwork and process that people have to fill out that paperwork and engage in that process, and, and when you are just trying to get by every day, that's a really big challenge. Yeah, so I have some numbers for Vermont to kind of add on to what you're saying about the expenses for emergency services. So um, it costs $48 a day through the ACT model, which is the assertive community treatment model, um, which is, you know, wraparound services like employment services and mental health services. This is what Pathways does. So it costs them $48 a day to 
um, work with somebody through the ACT model and get somebody housed. Um, whereas spending a day in the ER costs $1,500. Um, the Brattleboro Retreat costs $1,400 for the first couple days and then after that, um, $850 a day. Um, and incarceration, which of course um, ends up being another route that people end up going down due to like a whole variety of issues like criminalizing um activity a criminalizing activity of the poor also like um rihanna like what you were saying about people um getting involved in drug activity Mm -hmm. because of their circumstances so incarceration costs 150 to 200 dollars a day um Whereas versus this $48 a day through the ACT model and, you know, with a housing first model, whatever is going on in your life, they're going to put you in an apartment and really like how can you make improvements and changes in your life without stable, a stable place to live? Yeah. Well, that's the bottom line is that you really can't. I mean, it's in all the years that I've done this work, I don't think I've seen anyone you know, nobody's found any bootstraps that they were missing and figured out a way to, <laughs> to pull themselves up and, and remedy their situation. And I think that sometimes we forget that it might be fun to camp for a night or two. And especially because we live in Vermont, yeah. you know, a place in, in the world where people do camp for fun. Right. Um, but you're no longer camping for fun when you've been out for a month and your tent is soaked and rotten and you don't have a way to cook anything and you can't light a fire and you're camping on town property and we have a townwide ordinance that says that that's illegal and and you can be criminalized for that which luckily our police department does not um, based on the relationship we have with them but it's certainly not a glamorous way to live yeah and also not a choice that people are making right right uh let's take a short song break Cool. This song is Cash Out by Fugazi, and it's a song about eviction.
news programming on WVEW is underwritten in part by Everyone's Books. Located in downtown Brattleboro at 25 Elliott Street, Everyone's Books is a family-owned, independent bookstore that has been serving the community for over 30 years. They specialize in books about social change, the environment, politics, and travel, and offer a huge range of children's books. You can reach them by phone at 802-254-8160 or online via their website at everyonesbks.com. WVEW thanks Everyone's Books for their support of this station. Welcome back. You are listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. And today we are talking about housing in Brattleboro. Um, so I'm Kelly and I'm here with Amar and Rihanna Kendrick of the um, Groundworks Collaborative. And so we have been talking about um, kind of a bigger picture of what housing looks like in Brattleboro and what efforts are made to get people into housing. I think it's no secret that um, Brattleboro has a large homeless population. Is in fact constantly seems to be a community conversation with many people with many different um, interests involved in the in the conversation. So in this context of housing and lack thereof and quality units and rent and landlords, um, we wanted to talk a little bit about the short-term rental summit which is coming to Brattleboro, Vermont in May, May 19th and 20th. So I'm just going to read the description that is on the site for the Short-Term Rental Summit. The Short-Term Rental Summit is for Vermont short-term rental hosts and vacation property owners designed to celebrate and acknowledge their phenomenal success in our state, to build sustainable business skills and inspire awareness of state policies. So um, the Short-Term Rental Summit will be sponsored by Airbnb, and it is brought to you by the Downtown Business Alliance. So for me, I guess I'll just, I'll just start by commenting since <laughs> that when we're thinking about housing our community, part of my question is like, who is our community? And if we're talking about our community, then we need to be talking about everybody in our community and including people who are on the streets. And so when we're looking to put out more um, housing to vacationers, essentially, um, how are we affecting people who don't have a permanent place to live? Rihanna? Yeah, I don't think that I... I probably am a bit biased in this way, for sure. Uh, You know, the work that I do is focused on a pretty specific population and I I think of my work as kind of what defines who I am in the world so I'm really focused on wanting to see equity and wanting to see um, you know people who aren't otherwise able to meet their needs able to do that and so I'm not sure how more short-term rentals are attracting you know vacationers here does that I certainly also understand that downtown businesses need folks to be able to shop in their shops and eat in their restaurants to survive. And I know that, you know, it's a tough market downtown. So I'm not sure how we as a community balance the equity between those two things. Uh, But it certainly doesn't seem like Airbnb is potentially the answer, um, in my opinion. And, you know, I say that as also a resident of Brattleboro. Uh, I think it's, it reminds me similarly of the the state programs being put out to attract folks here and you know we've had people apply for jobs who are looking to relocate here from florida and at the same time you know we have 40 applicants of people who live here locally and uh, it feels like a bit of a conundrum if we start hiring people from out of state to come and live here when we're uh, struggling with what i consider to be crisis level needs in our community on a daily basis yeah, let's talk a little bit about just um, the Airbnb bigger picture. Yeah. So Airbnb uh, is a pretty huge company that is operating basically around the world and has been resisted in a lot of places for basically driving up rent in cities because it encourages landlords to do short-term rentals instead of long-term rentals, which can end up bringing in more profit for the landlord and ends up 
having fewer available long-term rental options for residents in cities and making those more expensive. So I also share a, a skepticism of how bringing in and encouraging more short-term rentals is actually going to be a positive move for our community. Um, seeing that we already have vacancy rates as low as they are and this is another opportunity and encouragement for landlords to move towards short-term rentals and that's not going to be good for the situation of rent prices in our community and availability of rental units in our community which are already not in a healthy state right now um so there has been a history or a, a recent history but happenings of resistance to Airbnb um, and laws being put in place against their being able to operate freely, for example, in um, in cities in Spain and in Greece. We'll talk for a second about Spain. There was, uh, within the last couple of years, a significant amount of protest and resistance to Airbnb moving into communities in cities like Barcelona. Um, and in both Spain and in Greece, one of the one of the things, one of the challenges that came up is that people have an idea and there's a sort of marketing of Airbnb as, oh, it's one person with an extra room in their house who's making a little extra money on the side and getting in, getting someone a reasonable room to stay. But the reality of Airbnb is that a lot of people who are renting out actually have a ton of different units. I was researching Athens, Greece, which is a place where there was a lot of uh, resistance to Airbnb, and some of the Airbnb hosts with the most properties have over 40 rental properties that they're renting out on Airbnb. So it's a different story than the single person who has an extra room in their house who's just getting a little extra on the side, um, basically. And so in there's been legislation passed in both Greece and in Spain that is limiting what people can rent out for their for Airbnb like in Spain there's legislation that is effectively made it so that up to 95% of the current rental units aren't able to be rented um they need to have a separate entrance and some different loopholes that people have to jump through to to rent out their units and that has basically come from local residents protesting and saying we want our cities to be affordable for local residents to be in and not be based around tourism and get too expensive for local residents to to live in yeah i feel like in this context like i mean there has there's resistance to airbnb all around the world in new york and san francisco a lot of the bigger cities in the u.s that are tourist destinations where people are genuinely being evicted for bogus reasons in order for the landlords to make the units short-term rental units i mean i think the people of Brattleboro should be seriously questioning why we would be bringing Airbnb to Brattleboro. Um, so let's talk a little bit about moving forward and um, not just solutions, but um, kind of a paradigm shift around housing and housing and the world we wish to see. So, um, Rihanna, can you talk a little bit about what you think would need to happen with housing in order for everybody in Brattleboro to be housed? Sure. Well, if everyone just had enough money, <laughs> really a lot of it goes back to money uh, at the bottom line. Uh, when we look at what would solve kind of the current needs uh, so that we wouldn't see as much homelessness. I mean, homelessness is always going to exist because poverty, you know, in our lifetime is always going to exist. And so there is some level of housing insecurity that people face. But what we really need is a better continuum of housing options. And so uh, when we try to support folks to become housed, we don't want to be shoving a round peg in a square hole. We want to be really looking at what is the what are the barriers that someone is facing? What is the best option for them? You know, that could look like anything from a recovery housing model to something like Great River Terrace uh, to simply someone needing a small amount of money to be able to lease up and then be sustainable on their own. And one of the things that we struggle with uh, as an agency focused on housing people is that we don't have a strong continuum of options. And so we are trying to 
to do too much with too little and constantly facing the barriers of that. Um, and so the housing bond that Vermont put out a couple of years ago was instrumental in helping to fund uh, Great Ridge Terrace. And the, the bottom line is that Great Ridge Terrace was a $4 million project. Uh, and so it's beautiful. It will continue to do amazing things for this community. And it's not a sustainable way to, we can't replicate that model over and over again. And so how do we come up with multiple solutions and and i think a big piece of it is really how do we as a community have this ongoing conversation and figure out you know as we're talking about short-term rentals uh, and vacationers on one end and homeless folks on the other how do we design a community and a plan that really works to support everyone i mean i mean it also seems like there just needs to be more housing period right yeah i mean we need new housing stock to be built and that comes down to to an issue of money is that you have to have money so we we certainly don't see an influx of a lot of units coming to our town, Great River Terrace, and the snow block that's currently coming up on Flat Street or some of the, the new builds that we've seen in the last, I'm not even sure how many years. So we really need to continue to add units that are available to folks. Yeah, so I'm also just thinking about um, kind of some of the things that have been in, done in other places in the world. And... Some of the things that I sort of envision and hope for for our future. And I guess I feel sort of critical about this conversation that revolves around um, landlords and landlords being good apples or bad apples. It reminds me a little bit of the police conversation around there's good police officers and there's bad police officers. Um, and like we can just acknowledge, I think, that there are some landlords out there who are wonderful people and who really want to do the right thing and who are putting themselves out there. Um, I guess I just question a little bit like the existence of landlords altogether. And I, um, I think about, I'm just thinking about Cuba, how um, after the Cuban revolution in 1968, they made landlordship illegal. So there are no landlords in Cuba um, everybody was living, um, wherever they were living, they paid a, f- a sum to own the place they were living in. Um, and pretty much everyone in Cuba is housed. Um, even if they're, I mean, sometimes it's tight quarters, but people aren't evicted for lack of ability to pay. Um, and like large buildings and rental units that were owned by landlords that were renting out, um, a lot of units were changed into um, something that was benefiting the community, um, schools or other community centers. Um, and I guess there was a, so there was an article in The Reformer recently, about a week and a half ago. Um, I think it's called Trying to Make a Difference or Trying to Make a Difference. And it sort of, um, uh, well, it profiled a landlord on Canal Street who um, spoke about how um, drug riddled the buildings were there and the, um, how he was trying to fix them up and he was looking for better tenants and that um, they were just deteriorating. And, but he knows that if he sticks with it, he can make a profit off of it. And I don't know, I guess I sort of have a problem with people making a profit off the housing of other people. And also the, again, like this paradigm that um, this landlord is somehow a hero for like housing people who are low income and who need places to live. I'm not sure at his rental prices that he's housing people who are low income. Uh, I certainly appreciate that he wants to improve his building. I think that that, that's a lovely thing for any landlord to be doing. I think I would say in contrast to the article, it mentioned the absentee landlords on either side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually, Ron Gaida, who owns the the building next door, is not an absentee landlord. And we work with him regularly. And um, it, it's a challenge that we face is where do we house people who may not have any other places to live? And so I think of our Navy veteran who lives in one of those apartments because nobody else would rent to him. And he struggles uh, frequently and on an ongoing basis and has lots of supports in place. Uh, and without Ron renting that unit to him, he would still continue to be homeless in our community, uh, which he was for nine years. So I'm not sure that that article tells the full story um, of what's going on in that neighborhood. 
I also found it interesting when looking for articles uh, that the ones that came up in the reformer, a couple about the situations of housing in Brattleboro are from what I found exclusively from the perspective of landlords. And I didn't find a lot about what housing in Brattleboro looks like from the perspective of actual residents in Brattleboro. It, both of the articles that I was reading are generally what do landlords need to do and what is the situation like for people renting out apartments in Brattleboro and how can they make this a profitable market generally. And I just thought that was interesting as we're trying to take a look at housing from the perspective of the community of Brattleboro and how to get more people housed. Yeah, I feel like I would also like to see um, some like more land and buildings become public resources instead of being privatized. Um, and one thing I learned about learning about Venezuela with everything that's happening recently is that um, during the Chavez era, people were able to reclaim pe um, large pieces of land and take it and they own it. And Chavez gave them tools to build their own houses on it. And they own the houses and they have co housing collectives on the land. Um, so I don't know, moving away from privatization and thinking about um, housing and land as our public resources for the public good. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways that we can look at housing. I don't think that a lot of what we do um, across our country is very creative when we line up against yeah. other countries, and I think we could certainly learn a lesson. Well, thank you so much, Rayanna, for being on with us. Thank you. Um, thanks for listening. And we will end with um, Woody Guthrie, I Ain't Got No Home in This World Anymore. <laughs> I ain't got no home, I'm just a roaming round Just a wandering worker, I go from town to town And the police make it hard wherever I may go And I ain't got no home in this world Brothers and my sisters are stranded on this road A hot and dusty road that a million feet have trod Rich man took my home and drove me from my door And I ain't got no home in this world Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives, jobs, debts, all of that. I'm your host, Richard Wolff. Today's program is going to be devoted, in a sense, to a single topic, fascism. It is back on the radar all around the world, 